Well, hey, First Church, so glad you guys are here, even all the rain we're having. Glad you made it in, you're dry, and we're excited to be with you guys and to open up God's Word together. And I just want to say a quick hello to the people on the other side of the camera. We've got family right now meeting out at Stone Canyon, as well as others who will join us later online. So if you would put your hands together, let's welcome them into our time of study here today. Well, I have to admit something. I did something a few weeks ago that I didn't want to do. I did something a few weeks ago that was against my better judgment. I'm just going to go and tell you, I agreed to coach my son's basketball team. I didn't want to do that because there's something you need to know about me. Yes, I love basketball, and yes, I love spending time with my kids. And so you would think it would be the perfect storm, the best combination. But what you need to know about me is I'm a pretty competitive person, and I really didn't want anyone to see that side of me, especially my son. And so I thought it might not be the best idea if I coach Alex, and he might learn better from somebody else than from daddy. So I just said, well, sign him up, and I won't coach. I'll just be there. I'll be at every game, every practice, but I just won't coach. And then we got an email about his first practice, and it said at the top, coach, Broadus, which is my last name. And I was like, I didn't sign up for that. So we contacted the YMCA and they were just like, yeah, nobody signed up to be your kid's coach and your, your name was first on the list. So we put you down as the coach. And I was like, but I don't want to. And they said, well, we'll try to find somebody, but your kid may not have a coach. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. It's better than me than maybe somebody who doesn't know anything at all about basketball because I know a little bit about it. So I agreed to do it. And honestly, it's been fun. It really has been. It's a five and six-year-old team. So they're learning the basics of basketball, the fundamentals, and it is a lot of fun. I love seeing the kids fall in love with the game, but I also love the experience because you just never know what a five or six-year-old is going to do or say. And so the first practice we had, I'm trying to teach them just some basics of the game. And, you know, there are kids there who have never touched a basketball in their life, and so they didn't know how to dribble or anything like that. And so I was trying to teach them, and I took some of them individually off to the side to show them you don't slap at the ball. You know, they want to dribble by slapping with a palm of their hand like that. You know, and the ball goes everywhere. It spirals out of control. They lose it. So like, that's not how you dribble. You want to dribble with your fingers, with the pads of your fingers. That's how you want to dribble. So I'm trying to demonstrate this one-on-one these kids. I've got an assistant coach who's helping me out. He's our Stone Canyon minister, CJ, so you're welcome, CJ, for me directing you to help me as well. Uh, but I brought him along, so he took some of the kids, and I took the ones who didn't, didn't know how to dribble and tried to coach and teach them. So I'm trying to teach this one kid, and I've got the ball in front of me, and I'm dribbling uh, in front of him. And I'm like, you dribble with your fingers, you know, the pads of your fingers. And as I'm dribbling, demonstrating in front of him, He takes his foot and he kicked the ball right off from underneath me as I'm driveling. And I'm like, what in the world, you little punk? You know, what are you doing? And I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. So I went over and I grabbed the ball and I brought it back. And I was like, no, no, now watch me. This is how you dribble. So I demonstrate again how you're supposed to dribble. And he looked at me and he goes, no. I was like, no, no what? He said, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, listen here, Mr. Five-Year-Old. Yes, I do. I do know what I'm talking about. And he said, well, that's not any fun. And he just walked off. And I thought, man, I'm going to love this kid. I just have a feeling I'm really going to love spending time with him. But, you know, he's kind of grown on me. He is fun. And he's warmed up to me a little bit. In our first game, we were losing. We were losing pretty bad. It's halftime. And I'm not one of these guys that believes everybody gets a trophy. And so I was honest with the kids. I was like, guys, we're losing because we're not playing well. We're not doing this, this, and this. Because I believe kids need to learn how to be gracious losers. I really do. So I'm trying to teach them, you know, all this stuff and coach them along the way. And as I'm talking to the kids, telling them what to do, this little boy speaks up and he goes, hey coach. I'm like, yeah buddy, what is it? He said, 
do you like Batman? Because I really like Batman. And I'm like, we're playing a basketball game right now. He said, well, did you know that Batman killed Superman? I'm like, we're getting killed in the game right now. Focus, you know, pay attention. So we go on with the game, and God love him. He's just all over the place. He's lost out there in the court. And we get done with the game, and the kids want to know, do we win or do we lose? They don't keep score, but you guys know, the coaches and the parents, we keep score. And so I looked at him. I said, guys, I hate to say it, but this game we lost. Maybe we'll win the next one, but we lost this one. And all the little kids, their heads go down. They're all disappointed pointed besides that one little boy he kept his head up and as soon as I said guys we lost he crossed his arms and he goes well it wasn't because of me and I thought I can't win with this kid anyway I love him though he's he's a lot of fun and you know that's the thing we can laugh at a little kid like that when they make silly comments but sometimes as adults we're more like little kids than we like to admit See, why was it I was trying to teach that little boy and other kids on my team how to dribble basketball? Because I wanted to rob them of fun, spoil their fun of slapping at the ball, or because maybe I just wanted to point them out and embarrass them in front of their teammates and parents? No, of course not. I wanted them to be the best basketball players they could be. I wanted them to teach them the fundamentals of the game so they could understand it. I didn't want the ball spiraling out of control every time they touched it. I wanted to improve their game. I was teaching them to help them, to help them be better players. You know, when I thought about that, that's exactly why God has given us commands and teachings, why we have commands and teachings in Scripture. God doesn't give us commands and teachings because he wants to embarrass us or point out our flaws or because he wants to be mean and spoil our fun. God's a father and he loves us and he wants what's best for us so he tries to teach us and coach us and train us, whatever word you want to use, so that we can live our best life possible. That's why he gives us these commands and teachings. It's kind of like my kids. Whenever they start to get closer and closer to the road, because for some reason kids, they just want to get close to the road and play in it, the street and play in it. I'm like, guys, get back out of the road. You need to stay in the driveway, stay in the yard. I don't know why you want to just gravitate towards the street, but stay out of the street. Now, why do I do that? Because I'm mean and I don't want to swallow my kids' fun of playing in the street? No, of course not. I am trying to save their lives. I'm trying to help them out, preserve their lives. And that's why God gives us commands, because he wants us to live the best life possible. And God's commands are given from the heart of a father. We always need to keep that in mind. And that's true about all of his teachings, all of his commands, including the subject that we're talking about in this series right now, which I said last week is a subject that a lot of people don't like to talk about. It makes some feel very uncomfortable, but it's true about it as well, and that's the subject of money. Now, I mentioned last week that a lot of people feel uncomfortable about the church talking about money. They don't want to hear it. Some people even skip out on a series like this because it makes them feel so uncomfortable. And I think there's probably two reasons why uh, people get uncomfortable about the subject of money in church. One is because you come from a bad church background. You came from a church that either preached the prosperity gospel or that maybe mishandled money or possibly you came from a church that just talked about it way too much and it was over the top and you were just done with it. So maybe you come from a bad church background. And I just want to let you you know, like I said last Sunday, that's not First Church. At First Church, we're not, we're not all about money. We're all about ministry, and there's a huge difference. But ministry requires resourcing, and we're going to talk about that here in just a second. But another reason why some people kind of check out when it comes to the subject of money in church is because they've never been taught God's plan for finances. So what the Bible says sounds strange and odd, and it's unusual, but that's kind of the point, because as we discussed last week, what's considered normal when it comes to money and possessions and resources in our culture today, 
That isn't working. So if you feel uncomfortable today, just take a deep breath. My job is not to make you feel bad or guilty. I don't want you to feel shame or anything like that. I'm not trying to pressure you into giving more money or anything like that. But I'm also not going to apologize for talking about money. Because Jesus talked about money. And he talked about money a whole lot. And there's a reason why he did, because he knew the way we view money affects the way we live life. And an unhealthy view of money can not only be dangerous, it can be destructive as well. The studies that are done every single year when they poll Americans and ask them about their finances show us just that. The number one thing that we worry about as Americans every single year, the number one thing that causes anxiety is money. Research by Northwestern Mutual states that money has consistently been, year after year, the number one cause of stress among Americans since the year 2007 when their research began. Another study done by the American Psychological Association says that 72% of Americans, 72% of Americans reported feeling stressed about their money in the last six months. Now that's 72% of Americans, that's three-fourths of Americans have felt stressed about money, some money issue in their life over the past few months. And another study uh, stated that 68% of men and 56% of women say they've lost sleep recently because of money. That's a huge chunk of our population. And what this tells us is what we worry about reveals what we're putting our trust in. Now, contrary to what some churches teach and some Christians believe, money is not a bad thing. Money in and of itself is not evil. Wealth is not a bad thing. Wealth is not evil. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 18, to wealthy people in the church. Listen to what he writes. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Now notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say to those who are wealthy in the church, you need to get rid of your riches. You need to get rid of your wealth because that's evil. If you've got money, then that's an evil thing. You just need to get rid of it altogether. He doesn't say that. Instead, what does he say? Wealth is a gift from God. Just as some people are gifted with the ability to teach or to sing or to you know, lead children or to serve in some capacity, do mission work, whatever. Just as some people are gifted in different areas, wealth should be considered a gift from God. And therefore, it needs to be used to honor God. That's why Paul goes on to say, be generous with it. Don't be arrogant about it, but use your wealth to do good for God. It's not an evil thing, but it is an uncertain thing. So don't let your lives revolve around your wealth. Instead, let your lives revolve around God, and then you will use your wealth for Him. That's why Paul goes on to say, or tells them not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And the whole point here that Paul is trying to make is a theme that we find all throughout Scripture, and it's this. Money isn't a bad thing, but it can be a dangerous thing. You've probably heard people say before, well, money is the root of all evil. And I hate to tell you this, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says something close to that, but it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. No, this is what the Bible actually says, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 For the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What does the Bible actually say? Money isn't evil. It's the love of money that causes all kinds of evil. It's the love, the pursuit of money at all cost that leads to evil practices. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. And the pages of history are full of examples of people who pursued money, pursued wealth at all costs, and it ended up costing them everything. You've maybe heard me say before, and I'm going to say it again, I believe that the biggest battles we have in life are not battles between good things and bad things. You would think that would be the case, but it's not true. The biggest battles we face are not the battles between good things and bad things. The biggest battles we face are the battles of good things. And what I mean by that is, if you make a good thing an ultimate thing, it will become a destructive thing. If you make a good thing, something that God intended for our good, something God intended for our well-being, something God intended to bless us, if you make a good thing an ultimate thing, it will become a destructive thing. If you put a good thing in the place where only God is supposed to be, that thing won't deliver on its promises. That what you're looking for, you won't find deep down in your soul. Instead, that good thing, which you've made an ultimate thing, will only lead to more and more grief, more and more emptiness, more and more destruction. And I believe money is a primary example of just that. Money isn't bad, but when you make it an ultimate thing, you'll lose out in the end. And that's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Because here's the thing, stock markets crash, businesses fail, investments go bad, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus never does. And when we try to get from money what only God can give us, what we end up with is what I like to call fool's gold, counterfeit treasure. What we end up with is really worthless in the end. So when Jesus points us to a better way to view and handle our money, we should be wise to listen to what he has to say because he knows the normal way of viewing and handling money isn't working. And that's why I always pay careful attention to Jesus' words in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Listen to what he has to say. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." See, Jesus was speaking to a first century audience that stored up wealth in the form of precious metals and precious fabrics. So as you can imagine, rust and a moth, or moths, plural, those could be very real threats to their stored up wealth if thieves didn't get a hold of them first. And so even though there's some cultural differences between Jesus' first century listeners and us today, I think the point that Jesus is making is still the same and very practical for us. Jesus is trying to teach us, don't waste your life chasing after things that can fall apart, be destroyed, or be stolen. There's nothing wrong with having those things, but don't let those things be what your life is all about. 
Don't invest your entire life in things that are here one day and could possibly be gone the very next. Instead, invest your life in what matters. Invest your life in treasure that can't fall apart, that won't be destroyed, that will never be stolen. And when we hear that, when we hear Jesus' words there from Matthew chapter 6, I think we all understand it and it makes sense to us. I mean, it makes logical sense to us. We get that, and yet, when we actually examine our lives, <laughs> we still sometimes allow for our lives to revolve around stuff that's temporary, that ultimately we can't take with us. You've probably heard it said before, you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You will never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. And you may have heard that in sermons. I may have said that before to you guys. I'm not sure. I know I was preaching that one time in a sermon, and I said, you will never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. And after I preached that message that afternoon, I got an email from one of my elders, and this picture was attached to the email. Take a look at this picture. Send me that email. Now, I think that's a staged picture, honestly, because I've never seen that, and I doubt if you have either. But even if it's true, it doesn't matter. You can allow a hearse to pull a U-Haul, but it doesn't matter. You still can't take it with you, and you guys know that to be true. We know the truth. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So, so practically, we know what Jesus says makes sense, but yet we don't always follow it. And so Jesus gives us a simple statement to evaluate our lives. And here it is, verse 21 of Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart is always connected to your treasure. Now, I used this illustration last year in a series, and it resonated with a lot of people. So I thought I'd bring it out again, because I know we've got some new people who have joined our church. Some people weren't here. And even if you were here, it's a good reminder. This piggy bank represents our treasure that we seek in life. And, of course, this heart represents our heart. And there's a chain here connecting the two, because the point that Jesus is trying to make is our treasure is forever linked, forever chained to our heart. And where our treasure is, our heart follows Wherever we invest our money, wherever we spend our time and our resources, our heart follows along. Now, I want you to notice something. Jesus did not say, where your heart is, your treasure follows. He didn't say that. He said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to go. That's where your heart is going to be. So sometimes we have the idea that, well, you know, I have the best of intentions of making God my ultimate treasure. I want to treasure Him above everything else. And so since we have the best of intentions and we feel like God is first in our lives and we want Him and desire Him to be our ultimate treasure, we say, well, you know, we're good to go. But when we actually examine our lives and we look at where our treasure is, where we look at where we spend our money and our time and our resources... It's not the case. We may have the best of intentions, but look where my money is. Look where my, I spend my time. And that's where you're also going to find my heart. If you want to know what Chad brought us treasures, follow my treasure. And Jesus says this because he wants us to know that God is to be what we treasure. Our relationship with him should be what we treasure above everything else. And so what I want to ask you today is, do you treasure the giver more than you treasure his gifts. Because sometimes, if we're honest, that's hard to do. 
And I think God knew that would be hard for us to do because we would get caught up in temporary stuff. And I believe that's why God gave us the biblical concept of, of the tithe in the Old Testament. We talked about this a little bit last week. That word tithe, if you're new to church, it just means a tenth or 10%. And the Bible teaches that when you get your paycheck, when you're paid, the first 10%, right off the top, should be set aside for God. Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. God has given us this principle for our finances, this teaching, in order to help us out. And I demonstrated it last week in this way. I said, if you have 10 $1 bills, when you get paid these 10 $1 bills, what you're supposed to do is the first dollar is set aside for God. It belongs to Him. It's His. The second dollar, the Bible teaches that we are to save up money so that we can get out of debt and not owe anybody anything, not be slaves to the lender. So we set aside another dollar for us to save, and then the rest of it is used for life, on life. As long as we use it in a God-honoring way, we can use this on whatever we need to use it on in order to live life. But the first 10% belongs to God. And the Bible teaches that if we do not set aside this first 10% for God, we are robbing Him. Now, sometimes people think, well, you know, I'll give, God, I'll give to God eventually. I'm just going to throw it all in there and I'll, I'll give God what's due Him. But that never works. If you don't, from the very beginning, set aside that first dollar for Him, you never will. And God teaches us this not because he needs this dollar. You know, the Bible says we rob God if we don't give him that 10%. God doesn't need this dollar. God doesn't need your 10% in order to survive. Why did he set this plan up? Because he knows what a temptation money can be. He knows that if we are not willing to put him first in our finances, we won't put him first in any other area of our lives. This is a teaching tool. He's training us. He's coaching us to put him first. And the Bible says that when we do put him first, he will honor our lives. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first God's kingdom and what God wants then all your other needs will be met as well. Now, Jesus doesn't say, give to God first, and then all your wants will be given to you. Everything you've ever dreamed of and wanted, you will have all this wealth and happiness. He doesn't say that. What he says is all your needs will be taken care of. In other words, God will watch over your life. God will provide what you need if you put him first. Now, that's not always easy. But when you put God first in your finances, you're proving that your trust is in Him and not in your stuff. And God will honor that life. Now, like I said, that's not always easy. And there have been times in my life when Alice and I, we have struggled to do just that. I know. I get it. And you right now, you might be thinking, Chad, we're barely making ends meet. We're scraping to get by. There's no way that we can set aside 10% right up front for God. We're not used to doing that. We can't do that. There's no way. And I've been in your shoes. I've been there before, and I've talked to other people who have been there as well. And I'm telling you, it might be hard at first. It might be difficult first, but this is God's plan for your life, and God never asks you to do something He won't give you the power and the strength to do. So if you do put Him first, 
It might be hard for a while, but he will honor that. And from my own experience, you will get to the point where you don't even miss it. But God will continue to honor your life in a way like he hasn't in the past. And the scriptures are full of stories of men and women who at one time or another put God first, even when it was hard to do so, even when they didn't have a lot. And when they put God first, God continued to honor their lives in incredible ways. And every time I think about that, there's one passage in the Old Testament that always comes to mind. And it's found in 1 Kings chapter chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, we're going to look at this passage on the back end of this message. I know we're getting to the end of it, but I want to look at this passage as we conclude because I believe it's a powerful example of what God does when we do put him first. And our passage in 1 Kings 17 takes place uh, during the time of Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament. And there's a famine, there's a drought all throughout the land of Israel because the people have rebelled against God. There's an evil king and queen on the throne. There are false prophets who are worshiping false gods. And Elijah is sent to get the people to repent, but the people aren't willing to do so. And so God sends this three-year famine basically on the land. And Elijah, God's prophet, is starving. He's hungry. And so God appears to Elijah and he says, listen, I want you to go to the city of Zarephath and I want you to find a widow there and when you go see this specific widow, she's going to give you some food. So Elijah does what God says. He goes to the city, he finds this widow and he says, God has sent me to you and you're to provide me with some food. Can I have some food? (laughs) Have a drink and some food. And this widow, she's also scraping to get by. She has a son And they don't have enough money to provide for themselves. In fact, she is literally down to her last meal. And so she turns to Elijah and listen to what she says to him in 1 Kings 17, starting at verse 12. It says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat eat it and die. They're down to their last meal. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me. So first do what God tells you. Do make a small bread for me, a cake of bread for me, for what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and she did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Now, I want you just for a second to put yourself in this widow's shoes. She has nothing left. She has no way to provide for her and her son. There's not food anywhere because of the famine that's in the land. And Elijah comes to her and says, God wants you to give him what you don't have. And this woman basically says, hey, I'd love to, but I can't do it. And listen to what Elijah tells her, verse 13. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Make your last meal, but first do what God wants you to do. Make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Elijah says, just trust God. 
God will take care of you. I know it looks like you don't have enough, but just put him first, do what he says first, and God will take care of you. Because Elijah is trying to reassure this widow that God will not ask us to do anything that he also doesn't give us the power to accomplish. And so this woman, she trusts God. She trusts what Elijah tells her, and she goes and she makes this meal and she gives first to God. And you know what ends up happening? God provides for her and her and her family in a miraculous and incredible way. Verse 6 says, For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry during all the time of that famine, in keeping with the word of the Lord. In other words, she put God first, and God honored her life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not telling you that if you put God first, as God commands you to do, that He's going to do some great miracle in your life. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, You put God first, he promises that he will take care of you, that he will honor your life. And I believe that even though God may not do the exact miracle for us that he did for this widow, I believe we can learn how God responds to us when we put him first from this passage, how God honors a life that puts him first. Look at what happened here. First of all, we see that when we put God first, God provides for us. First Kings 17 doesn't tell us that this woman got enough food to have a banquet every night. I mean, she wasn't having a five-course meal every night, but she always had enough flour. She always had enough oil for her family and for Elijah to eat. God took care of her. And in the same way, when we put God first, it doesn't mean that we're going to get the new sports car. It doesn't mean we're going to get the new house. It doesn't mean that we're going to get the new job or anything like that. We might, but it doesn't mean. that God isn't promising that. But what he's telling us is, I I will honor your life. I will take care of you. Remember what Jesus said. We looked at it before. Matthew 6, Seek first God's kingdom and what God wants. Then all your other needs will be met as well. God will take care of us when we put him first. But then second, we see that when we put God first, God stretches our faith. See, what's interesting to me is if you were to read a little bit uh, further back than what we read, we discovered this woman probably isn't a believer in Yahweh God. She probably doesn't have much faith at all, and yet by the end of her story, she is sold out to God. First Kings 17, 24, she tells Elijah, I know that the word of the, of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. See, what happens is she put God first, and then that allowed for God to continue to reveal himself in her life. And Elijah stays with her. She takes care of him over this three-year period, and she is introduced more and more to who God is, and she sees God do more and more incredible stuff, even to the point on one occasion, her son, her only son, dies And Elijah, with the power of God, brings her son back from the dead. She would have never experienced that work of God in her life if she hadn't first decided to put God first. Now again, I'm not saying that God is going to bring miracle after miracle in your life. But what I'm saying is, the more that you put God first, the more he will stretch your faith. You will experience his presence in your life. You will see him at work in your life. And then the third thing that we see is that when we put God first... God does a lot with a little. See, in the grand scheme of things, this little piece of bread that this widow offered Elijah wasn't much. 
wasn't much at all. And do you honestly think that God needed that little piece of bread in order to sustain his prophet, in order to sustain Elijah? You think God was looking all throughout the land and saying, oh boy, I sure hope I find a widow that's got a little bit of flour left because if not, Elijah's going to starve. Do you think that's what God was saying? Of course not. God had just fed Elijah with ravens from heaven. I mean, God could provide for Elijah if he needed to. So God wasn't searching all throughout the land. Boy, I hope somebody's got a little bit of flour left somewhere so I can use it. No, why did God tell Elijah to go to this widow? One, to teach her something, but also to set an example for all of his people. God can do a lot with a little. You may think that you don't have a whole lot to offer God, but you put him first with it, he'll do greater things with it. He'll use it in powerful, incredible ways. And what's cool is, this widow gets to be part of God's plan to redeem Israel. Because right after Elijah's done spending time with this widow, we find out he goes to Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel is when there's a showdown with the evil king and queen of the land and when he gets to stand up to the false prophets of the false god and he gets to take them on in the name of God. And if you remember that story, it's an awesome story in 1 Kings 18. Fire comes down from heaven and lights up God's altar and the entire nation ends up repenting in, in one moment. And all that happened because Elijah was able to survive this famine and make it to that point, and God allowed this widow to play a part in that. She got to be part of God's plan to redeem Israel. And right now you may be thinking, hey, I don't have a whole lot to offer God, and even if I did give my 10% to God, it's not much compared to other people in our church or other people in the world or whatever. Let me tell you something. You may never see exactly how it's used, and maybe you will, but you put God first, he will let you be part of his incredible plan to redeem the world. How awesome is that? God can do a lot with a little. Remember, we serve the God who takes five loaves of bread and two fish and feeds 5,000. You offer him what you have. He'll use it. He will honor it. The question is, will you trust him to do so? Will you trust him by putting him first? I had the opportunity to speak at the fun festival that the Owasso Spirits put on just a couple weeks ago. They used our church as their venue, and if you're not familiar with the Owasso Spirits, it's basically a group of some really cool individuals that participate together in Special Olympics, and they also participate in different special educational opportunities, and I got a chance to speak with them last year, and they invited me back to speak again this year. I guess I did an okay job. They invited me to come back, and here's a picture this year with me and this group, and we just had a blast. I love hanging out with these guys and what was cool is throughout the week if they did something if they accomplished something or did something well then their sponsors gave them a token and at the end of the week of this fun festival this fun camp they could cash in their tokens and get some type of prize and they were all excited every time they get a token you know they get all excited about it and they all wanted their prize and at one on, on one day during the week of this camp one of the young ladies uh, one of the campers she came up to me and she said Chad, Mr. Chad, I haven't seen you get any tokens. And I was just like, yeah, I haven't got any yet. And she was like, you need some tokens. Here, take a couple of mine. And I was like, no, no, you save those. You're trying to get them to get a prize at the end of the week. No, no, you save them. And she said, no, I want you to have some. You need some tokens. I said, no, seriously, I'm fine. I'm good. I appreciate it. That's very nice. But you hang on to them. And she looked at me and almost got a little mad. And she said, Mr. Chad, this is what Christians do. And then she handed me her tokens. And then she said, you're a preacher. You should know that. She scolded me a little bit. And so I took a couple of her tokens. I eventually gave them back. 
But I took them in that moment. But it hit me. This is what Christians do. Most of us in this room today know what's expected of us as followers of Jesus. But it's our choice whether or not to do it. So the question is, are you going to do it? The question is, where's your treasure? Do you treasure the giver more than you treasure his gifts? Because if you want to know what I treasure, follow my treasure. Follow how I spend my money, how I spend my time and my resources. Do you treasure the giver more than you treasure his gifts? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today and this chance we've had to open up your word, both from the New and Old Testament, and see what you want, what you expect from our lives. And you aren't giving us these instructions to be mean or to hold us back or spoil our fun. You're giving us these instructions because you want us to live the best life possible. So, Father, may we put you first in every area of our lives, especially when it comes to our finances. Because your word teaches money is not a bad or an evil thing, but it can be a dangerous thing. And when we refuse to put you first in our finances, we probably won't put you first in any other area of our lives as well. Thank you so much for loving us, for giving us a chance to be part of your eternal plan to change the world. May we not take that responsibility lightly. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.